We're going to be returning to the book of Numbers this morning, but on your way back to the book of Numbers, would you stop by the Song of Solomon? The Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon, which is titled the Song of Songs, in chapter 2 of the Song of Solomon, and in verse 9, we have this reading. I am overwhelmed with learning about the things that God did for me before I ever knew about it. (laughs) From eternity, he was dealing with my needs. And from eternity, he had names written down in the Lamb's book of life. And so often in our life, we find it is just like this verse of scripture shares with us. That he is behind the scenes. He is behind the lattice, as we find here in the Song of Solomon. Its lattice is that stuff we put around that has holes in it, semi-obscures. But in the purpose of God, we find that he works behind there. As we have looked here in the book of Numbers chapter 22, we find that the children of Israel have come to a place that they've set up their tents and their life is going on prior to them entering into the promised land. And over the other side of the hill, we have a great plot against them. And yet we find that God works in his marvelous way to protect his people and they don't even seem to understand that it's happening. Well, read with me. Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 9. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. You know, this beloved, we find that the church was asked, why do you think so much of this one? Why do you think so much of this one? Aren't there other lovers that you could have? And the the bride says, he is altogether lovely. Everything about him is marvelous beyond compare. He is a savior that saves. He's a redeemer that redeems. He has all things worked out for his honor and his glory and his praise. And he extends that to his people and gives them all salvation full and free without payment from our side, only payment from his side goes on to tell us here that oftentimes he looketh forth at the windows showing himself through the lattice. Now, that word showing himself could be flourishing. You know, he's, he's very active behind that lattice. He's doing, he's not at a standstill. He's not waiting for things to happen. He's flourishing behind there. He's doing his bidding as he is hidden from us from time to time. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing is left out from his knowledge. In fact, we find out he does more than permit things to happen. He purposes things to happen. And his purpose was to reveal his glory unto a people that he is going to die for on the cross. So he is flourishing behind there. He has so much activity that he's doing on the behalf of his people and is so often unbeknownst to us. Well, let's travel, if you would, back to the book of Numbers. And we find in this passage of Scripture that the Lord of glory is going to perform so much for the children of Israel that they don't even realize that it's happening. But it is for them. 
And, you know, the Lord is so good to us that from behind the lattice, he will always, whatever the Lord desires to reveal to us, will never be contrary to how he saved his people. Saved people will be in complete agreement with God. We'll not, have, we'll not be contrary to God. We'll, we may not understand it, but that does not prevent us from believing it. We'll trust God in the matter. We'll believe God in the matter. We'll go with God in the matter. And that's what he reveals to us. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So he's going to reveal his word to us. We're going to see it and we're going to say, you know, God said it. I'm just going to go with it. He is working, flourishing behind the lattice on my behalf. Here in the book of Numbers chapter 22, we started this chapter last week. And we found out that there was a king of Moab had a problem. Now, the children of Israel are camped over here. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're camping just all over from Jericho. That's where they're going to cross the Jordan River. That's where they're going to go into the promised land. Jericho is the first city that they're going to meet. And we know the story of the walls of Jericho. God took care of that. He's working for his people in such a glorious and manifests himself in such a glorious way as he did to, uh, to Joshua, the angel of the Lord, the captain of the Lord's host. He reveals himself that way. So we have a problem. These children of Israel, they've been traveling for about 40 years. They're ready to go in. It isn't quite the right day yet. They haven't fulfilled their full 40, day, uh, 40 years. And they're camped there. They're doing their business. They're going about their business. And on the other side of the hill, we will say, we have the king of Moab has a problem. The children of Israel were camping too close, and it may threaten his party. He's been going on just normally as uh, kings do, not paying much attention to what's going on around him. And yet he noticed that this group of people, between three and six million people, have camped right next to his border and he's having a problem. So he's going to send word to his pastor. It tells us here, the children of Israel, says in verse 1, where they are. And it tells us in verse 2, and Balak, the son of Zippor, so all Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was sore afraid of the people. Now remember what Israel did to the Amorites. You know, many years before this, God had spoken to their father Abraham and said, now your, your family is going to be in, in jail, so slavery, down in Egypt for 400 years. And I don't know, Abraham probably shocked him just a moment, but then he realized Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. 400 years, those people were going to be in bondage in Egypt. And the formula for their release was when the full, the full sinfulness of the Amorites is full, then they'll be released. Well, we find out in the last chapter that they took care of the Amorites just like God Said they would, and they're ready to go in. But this king of Moab, he's having a problem with it. His name is Balak, and he is going to send for his pastor. And his pastor is a soothsayer. Now, the reason I know that, and keep your finger right there, but turn with me to the book of Joshua for just a moment. In the book of Joshua, chapter 13, Joshua reviews a little bit about this guy, this 
Balak's pastor. His name is Balaam. And he shares with us here in the book of Joshua chapter 13 and verse 22, what kind of profession this guy is known for. His profession is the soothsayer. He is a magician, a sleight of hand person. He is not like we heard this morning about John. He said his commission was to make the way to the Lord straight. This guy was contrary to that in every possible way he could because he was interested in not the gospel, but he was interested in reward. That was his interest. That was what held him. It tells us here in the book of Joshua chapter 13 and verse 22, Balaam also the son of Beor, the soothsayer, did the children of Israel slay with a sword among them that were slain by them. So we read about his demise, and we're going to go back and read about what happened to him here in the book of Numbers earlier, because it tells us that this soothsayer is approached by the king of Moab. The king of Moab and the soothsayer are all superstitious. They're superstitious about their religion. He believes... And it appears that Balaam also believed that he had the ability of putting a curse on people. Maybe he had that little doll and put pins in it. I don't know what was going on, but there ha- he had the reputation. Let's go back there to the book of, of Numbers chapter 22. And it tells us here in verse 5, And he sent messengers therefore unto Balaam the son of Beor to Pathor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. That's all I want you to do. Curse them so I can take over. I've noticed what they've done to the Amorites, and I don't want to fall into the same position that those people did, so you curse them so I can take over. Curse me, this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail that we may smite them, and that we may drive them out of the land. For I want that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. I've heard through the grapevine, I've, I've heard that you are somebody that can do this. Whom you bless, they're blessed. Whom you curse, they're cursed. So I want you to curse this people. Who is Balak talking about? The children of Israel. That's who Balak is talking about. And that is who he is going to pay Balaam to curse. The people of Israel. He says they came out of Egypt. They're a swarm of people. And they've taken over and, and I need help with them. And so he sends his ambassadors, in verse 7, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed from the rewards of divination in their hands. They have payment for this curse in their hands. They know how to get to Balaam. You know, I've said many times, if 99% of the churches in America said to their pastor, we can't pay you anymore, how many would be encyclopedia salesmen the next day? Why? Because they're in it for reward. The Apostle Paul shares with us 
he felt himself only as a waterer. And his brother in Christ, who was also a preacher, Apollos, he said, he, uh, no, Paul said, I am just a planter. And my brother Apollos is just a waterer. We're just servants. There's nothing in it for us. It is God that giveth the increase. They understood that and how glorious it is to understand that it is God that gives the increase. I am nothing more than a planter. Someone else may come along. Brother Lance may come along and water it. Brother Wayne, Brother Gary, some other preacher come along and just water it. Brother Mike standing up here, water it, plant it, water it, plant it. But what is the result? It must come from God. We cannot produce it. People who try are messing where they don't belong, and they're like Balaam, they're soothsayers. They're like Balak, wanting a curse or a blessing. All right, in verse 80, he said unto them, Lodge here this night. Now, this is Balaam speaking concerning that embassage. Those folks that were sent by Balak. He says, spend some time here. Now, if we follow this through for a little bit, we think, well, this guy's on the level. Look what he's going to do. He said here, he said, lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me, and the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. Stay in my house tonight, and tonight I will go have a conversation with God about this matter. And then it tells us, God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? Now that question is like all questions that God asks. When he came to Adam and he said, Adam, where art thou? He was not trying to collect information. He was not trying to find out where Adam was. You know, God said, what, what man are these? Is it not because God does not know? It is because he wanted Balaam or me or you in a framework to consider that what we don't know. Balaam didn't know a whole bunch. And Adam, in his fallen condition, didn't know anything. He was dead in trespasses and sin, and if it wasn't for God coming down and speaking to him and calling him and covering him, Adam would have died in that Garden of Eden with covering of fig leaves and paid no attention whatsoever to ever anything God had to say. God had to intervene in his life, just as we're going to find out here. God came down to Balaam and said, What men are these? And he wants Balaam to understand I know all about this. I am reading things through the lattice. My people are over there. And you have been called on to curse them. Now notice what he tells Balaam here. He says, And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about those descendants of Abraham. Where did Abraham come from? You know, the Bible tells us in Joshua that Abraham and his whole family worshipped other gods. If you study anything about the the Urites, you'll find out there's probably 10,000 different deities that they had, and Abraham was right in the mess with them. He was a worshiper of other gods. He had no interest in God. He had never heard about God. 
God had never come down there in that form to reveal his truth of the gospel to him. But we read in the book of Acts chapter 7 that Stephen goes back to the time of Abraham and brings us up to date. (laughs) The God of glory appeared unto Abraham in Mesopotamia. You know, everything that Abraham could ever boast in was because of that. The God of glory. You know, that same word is used in that same chapter down at the end when Stephen beheld the glory of God as he closed his eyes. The God of glory. This God of glory revealed unto him, appeared unto him, is such a striking thing. It isn't no small thing that happened in a corner, but it was something that was so enormous to Abraham. He was caught up. He was brought to senses. God revealed himself to Abraham. The God of glory came to him. It wasn't Balaam. It was the God of glory. And now we have the descendants of Abraham there, these children of Israel. Abraham had two sons. Well, he had a number of sons, but two of them are very important in the scriptures. One of them was Ishmael. And God says he was born after the flesh. And he had another son by the name of Isaac. And he was born after God's determination because we find out his mama was 90 years old and she was, the Bible is very clear, past the years of having children. So this is going to be a miracle birth. You know, that's what God does when he gives us the new birth. It's a miracle birth. It's not of our doing. It's not of our contrivance. It's, we're unable. We can't get there. So we find that Abraham, these are the children of Abraham. These are the children. Now, not all of these people we read in the, by the Apostle Paul's uh, wisdom given to him by the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans, that not all Israel was of Israel. But they're a type and a picture of the church. And here, they're over here, taking care of business, living their life, waiting for entering into the promised land. And over here, we have a king that is upset with them being there, and he entertains payment to a soothsayer to put a curse on him. And this soothsayer, God comes to him as God even does to Satan himself and all of his imps, all that stuff. He's not without knowledge of all things. In fact, he uses them for his honor and for his glory. He did that with Job. He did that himself. Satan came down and tempted the Lord. He did exactly the same temptation to the Lord that we find went to Adam. And you know what? Adam fell, and Jesus Christ came out saying, Hallelujah, I'm King of kings, and I'm Lord of lords. He will bow someday. All right. Now notice here. It tells us, verse 12, And God said unto Balaam. I like this. He didn't suggest this to Balaam. (laughs) He said unto Balaam, Thou shall not go with them. Now that's good advice. (laughs) The gospel is straight Make straight the way to the Lord. Don't deviate. Don't go to the right hand or to the left hand. Don't get it mixed up in that. Straight, thou shalt not go with them. Don't you dare go with these folks. They only have one thing in mind, and that is my people and harm to my people. 
All right. Secondly, he says, thou shall not curse the people. Now, there's two meanings there. You shall not, and I shall not let you. You know there's something about God's people? God has blessed them with a blessing that cannot be removed, and nobody can interfere with it. Did you know what we, what we read over there in the Psalm 32 and verse 2? Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Blessed is the man whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. What does that mean? There is a blessed people that God has taken care of their sin debt. They're a blessed people. They cannot be cursed. There will be no curses ever brought to them. Now, people may mock them, and people may make fun of them, and people may say, well, I heard the other day about a preacher on, on YouTube preaching about the most dangerous doctrine in the world. You know what the most dangerous doctrine in the world is? He was preaching against God getting involved with people before the foundation of the world. Preaching against God having an atonement that actually atones. That's the most dangerous doctrine in the world. Are you giving me... The guy knows nothing about the gospel because the most glorious gospel is God being in charge, saving his people from their sins without their help. We can't do anything. We're dead in trespasses and sin. And if God should come along, thank God for grace. Grace. Now God said to this man, thou shalt not curse them, for he tells us in the last, what is it? Four words, for they are blessed. Those people over there are my people, and they are blessed. You cannot curse them. You will not curse them. And you shall not go with them. Well, we find through the scriptures how God declares to a group of people that he has foreknown before the foundation of the world that they are a blessed people. You know, they are so blessed that it tells us in the New Testament that the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. Oh, we come under all kinds of threats by religion. You're going to have to answer for that. My Savior has answered for that. All the sins of all his people were poured out on him, imputed to him on the cross, and he paid completely and forever for all of them. And they will not be charged with them. In fact, the Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to bring the subject up once again. In the book of Romans, he said, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So no charges. Now, we may charge ourselves sometimes because, oh my goodness, you know what we are made of. But God will not charge us. That charge went to Christ. They are blessed. The church is blessed. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. They are blessed. It is a blessed people that God has. And now, we find that Balaam, he said, don't go. Don't go with him. Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go to you. I cannot go. I cannot go. Well, these ambassadors go back to their king and said, Sorry, he won't come. You know what that king did? He says, 
Take my checkbook. There's a blank check. I'll sign it. There's a blank check. You take this check back and say, whatever it takes, all the gold and silver that I have, if necessary, you have that man come and curse these people. Well, what did they do? They turned right around and went back. And they bring, they come to Balaam and said, Thus saith, verse 16, They came to Balaam and said unto him, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor. And I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, and curse me this people. And Balaam answered and said unto his servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. We think, what's wrong with this guy? He's saying all the right words. Verse 19, Now therefore I pray you, tarry you also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. What did he say before? Don't go. Don't curse. They are a blessed people. Well, let's find out what else he says. You know, people are always wanting to add. I'm not quite satisfied with that answer. You know, I know what it is to be not satisfied with the answer. The man who brought me the gospel said there is one answer. And I wanted two or three. Those folks down there in New Guinea where Brother Lance Heller's father was for 55 years, when Lance was down there this last time, and they came to him and says, all these other religions have brought all of these things. You know, they bring hospitals, they bring this, they bring that, and they think that that's honoring God, doing that service like that. If you're going to go down to New Guinea to open a hospital, don't put it under a religious name. Just be a doctor. Because there's only one thing that God has ever asked the church to do when they go out on a mission field. And that's what Lance's father did. He went down there with one thing. It wasn't medicine. It wasn't doctoring. It wasn't with how to dig wells. It wasn't how to do anything. He brought one thing, and that's the only thing God has ever asked any one of his preachers to ever do, and that is to declare Christ. The only hope, declare Christ. Those folks down there in those 23 churches thanked Lance to tell his father for coming down and sharing one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And those folks where Lance is are thanking him for the same thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nobody will remember the Band-Aid. But for eternity, people will remember the message. When God gives it to our heart. The message is what we remember. Thank God for the message. Yes, the man who brought me the gospel was a kind man. I hated him, but he was a kind man. But I remember him for the message. Christ and him crucified. So this man says, let me find out what more. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, shalt th thou shalt do. 
Now between verse 20 and verse 21, do you notice any men coming? (laughs) Nobody came. And what did Balaam do? The allurement. The allurement. He loved notoriety. He loved preeminence. You know, there's a preacher mentioned over in the book of 3 John, I believe, who prattleth about and would not receive John. Can you imagine? John, one of the Lord's disciples, who was given the privilege of writing the book of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, this man, Diotrephes, refuseth to receive John. Why? Because he hated his gospel. He hated the message of Christ. He prattled about. He wanted the preeminence. He wanted the position. You know, there are many things that we can learn from John the Baptist. And one of the things that John the Baptist did, he never endeavored to have a following. (laughs) He always pointed his disciples in one direction, and that was to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, which giveth his life for the sins of the world. And you know, two of his disciples turned around and said, John, thank you, and they left. And you know what he said? Hallelujah. He was not having a problem with those disciples going to follow Christ because that was his goal. That's the goal we have. So as we look here, Balaam, it says in verse 21, Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey. Now, forgive me. (laughs) I'm going to use the word donkey. We used to have a preacher attend when we were in the old building, and I got his Bible when he passed away, and right there he says, Brother Norm said the word donkey instead of the word that's right there. So forgive me, it's going to be donkey. Balaam rose up in the morning. What did the Lord say? If those folks come, then you go, but don't you do anything past that. And he rose up and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now notice verse 22. And God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Oh, my. We've got an adversary of Balaam, and his title is angel of the Lord. Now, who is that? Who's the messenger of Jehovah? No, in a pre-incarnate way, he appeared unto Balaam. And Balaam could not see him. How strange it is that that donkey saw him before Balaam saw him. He saw him and saved Balaam's life. And then the Lord opened his eyes. Let's read through here. God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him, Now, he was riding upon his donkey, and his two servants were with him. You know, he is traveling with these folks from Moab. It was just, as I was reading through this this last week, I said, you know, I've often thought that he was just traveling alone. Not only did he have two servants, but he had a whole host. And most of them didn't see a thing. Most people don't. How do we get to see Christ? When he opens our eyes. How does he do that? He has to raise us from the dead. How do we hear Christ? When he gives us ears. How do we see Christ? When he gives us sight. How do we get to smell Christ? When he gives us a nose. 
All of our spiritual senses must be given by God. There is an incident in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus Christ was notified that one of his friends was sick nigh unto death, and Jesus Christ refrained himself from healing from a distance, because he could have done that, or even joining him, he could have done that. But he stayed where he was until word came that that friend of his had died. Jesus said to his disciples who were with him, he's asleep. And they said, well, that's good because people that are sick, (laughs) they need sleep. No, he said, I'm talking about he died. Why did he stay? Why did he stay so long? That the glory of the Lord might be revealed. So when it came time, he went down there and the tomb is covered. You know, we don't often do it that way in our culture but in their culture they had a place above ground down in uh, new orleans i saw things like that where if you're buried below ground your lab will end up in the mississippi river but they have above ground well they had it all sealed up and the lord came and he knew how long it had been and he knew what those ladies would say don't take that door away you know that's just a Sample of what it is to be dead without Christ, stinking dead. But this Lord of glory, the angel of the Lord, came in his mighty power, and he said just a few words, Lazarus, come forth. And there was no way in this world that that man, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, could not come. He had the God that created the heavens and the earth, the solar systems and everything on it, all of the water of the earth and all the land of the earth and all the creatures of the earth in activity. He had his voice calling him. And so it is when he calls us out of darkness to his marvelous light. The Lord is going to use a donkey here. You know, this is not the first time that God has used an animal. It's interesting when you go over to the book of Genesis, you find out when God called on Noah to build that ark, Noah didn't have to go out all the hinterlands and bring those animals in. What did they do? They came. Yes, they came. God called them. They came. And they entered into the ark. We had all kinds of critters entering in that ark. And Noah did not have to go after them. Noah didn't have to do anything. He stood there in the door and they came in. We find in another place that there was one of God's prophets that was fearing for his life. And God told him to camp by a brook. You know, there must not have been a salmon run in that creek. Because there's nothing about him fishing. There's nothing about him doing anything. God said, I'll send you ravens with food in their mouth. Can you imagine a raven carrying food? Those guys are just, they'll eat anything. Why should they share with anybody? You know, it's uh, one of the movies I watched with the kids one time, you know, a whole bunch of seagulls like ravens were squawking and it was interpreted, mine, 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 mine. That's just what a raven does. It's mine. God said, I'll send ravens to feed you. Oh, in the days of Jonah, he knew, he knew, he knew. And 
he revealed that he was the one that this whole wind was over. And so they cast him into the deep, into the Mediterranean Sea. And you know what? God said he prepared a great fish to swallow him. We find in the book of Matthew that they were going to need to pay some money. <laughs> Don't you wish taxes was this, this easy? And he said, Peter, go down, go down there to the, to the lake and cast in your hook. And when a fish comes up, land him and take the golden coin out of his mouth and pay your dues. Can you imagine God having absolute control over all those animals that were brought to the ark, over those ravens that came. You know, at one time, I, I should have entered this in too, at the time that the flood, when it was all through raining, Noah cast out a dove. And that dove flew around, and guess what? Came right back. Went out again, came back. Came back the third time with a branch, olive branch. Now, you know, the Lord demonstrates his almighty power over another donkey. He told his disciples, just in preparation for the last Passover that God ever authorized. You know, there's going to be some more, but they're not his. He says, there's going to be one Passover, and then I'm going to institute what we know as the Lord's Supper. And he says, I want you to go over there, and there's going to be a donkey and there's a foal of a donkey and I want you to bring that foal of a donkey over here that it specifically says no man ever rode you know what the scripture says about a donkey man be born like a wild donkey's colt that's the way we're born self-will strong will do it our own way God doesn't mean anything I'll take care of it myself and God said, through this incident, the Lord came. They brought that donkey, that colt, never been ridden. They laid some coats on the back of that donkey. And lo and behold, Jesus Christ stepped, sat on it. And that donkey didn't even crowfoot. He rode it through crowds of People screaming, Hosanna to God, glory to God in the highest. And every, all the religious people says, please have your master tell me to be quiet. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah. Behold, your king cometh riding upon a donkey, full of a donkey. Well, the Lord has absolute control over all things and even in the animal kingdom. And right here, we find out that he has the control over a donkey, a man who thinks he's somebody, going to reap some reward. He's going to go with every intent he can to curse those people because of reward. And God comes upon him and says, you won't see me, but that donkey will see me. Let's notice here. The Lord's anger was kindled. Now, in the latter part of verse 22, now he was riding upon his donkey and his two servants with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. Boy, sometimes we just hope people get to be donkeys, don't we? So they can see the angel of the Lord. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. And his sword drawn in his hand. 
you know, we're going to find out that if I hadn't stopped your donkey, I would have killed you. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field, and Balaam smote the donkey and to turn her into the way. Here is the glory of God right in front. Balaam can't see a thing. The donkey sees everything. And instead of going up and getting any closer, he just turns out and goes out to the wheat field. Well, you know, he's got that whip in his hand and he starts the backside of that donkey get back in the road. Well, it goes on to tell us, but the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself into the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place where was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. Isn't that interesting how we find the Lord does hedge us about, doesn't he? The Lord does bring us down. The Lord brings us to a point. The Lord continues to do that. For everyone that is his people, he continues to hedge them down. No turning to the right hand or to the left hand. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, he fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the donkey with a staff, and the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said unto Balaam, Oh my goodness, can you imagine that happening to you? What would you think? Well, it doesn't seem to affect Balaam very much. His donkey talking to him. Now, I don't know how many commentaries I read that this had to be a, a special way that this donkey signaled to him. There was no way that he had, could have conversation. You know, someone who says that after plain word of God doesn't know God, doesn't know anything, does not trust God in the matter. This donkey talked to its master. And it talked in Hebrew or Moabites, whatever it was that might have been Mesopotamian, because that's where this Balaam was from. But whatever language Balaam was from, that donkey talked to him in that language and conversed with him. And said here, Balaam, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the donkey, Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in my hand, for now would I kill thee. And the donkey said unto Balaam, Am I not thy donkey, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever what to do so unto thee? And he said, No. Then. That's a very important then. Oh, to have this then in our life. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He was going to be able to see something. But you know, as we follow this through, we find out, and as we get to the New Testament about this man, we find out he didn't know anything. The Lord was gracious to show him himself, but he never showed him himself. He showed him, he said, the Lord standing in the way, and his sword was drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. 
And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thy donkey these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the donkey saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I would have slain thee and saved her alive. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. You know, this is just some mock repentance. You know why he did that? Because he'd done a really stupid thing. Almost every religious experience that we have ever had, and we get try to get right with God, we've rededicated our lives, we've been resaved, we've got all that, has been a result of doing something really, really stupid against God or someone else, and now we want to make it right. You know what? Repentance, true repentance, is a gift that God gives us in the new birth. Repentance and faith are gifts. We don't have that. Now, in our natural self, we may be sorry for what we did, and that's what Balaam is going to demonstrate. But in real life, in real salvation, we find out that the Scriptures teach us that repentance and faith are gifts that we cannot do ourselves, and they're given to us, and then it is real. Over there in the book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the clearest statements about repentance is, you've turned from dumb idols to worship the true and living God. We're not through, but we will stop right here. I pray that each one has a then when the Lord revealed himself. Brother Mike.